Today, Pat will be preaching from Mark 14, 43 through 50. Let me invite you to stand in honor of God's holy word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ Community. My name is Pat. Uh, it's good to see you all here this morning. I currently serve as an elder here at the church. It's a privilege, as always, to speak to you from God's Word. Today is a, a really sweet day, uh, not just because we're able to be here together in this field and to sing and to meet with one another and with the Lord, but because our church gets to take part in something really special this morning. Later on, we're going to commission Michael and Chastity Johnson and a core team of people to launch Rantoul Community Church. Since the beginning of Christ's community, we have been asking God to give us the privilege of planting new churches. And today we celebrate the incredible work that God has done in making that happen. As a celebratory send-off as that will be, it stands somewhat in stark contrast to the content of our passage this morning. And this, the, the passages that we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. Today's passage continues some of the darkest hours in the life of Christ. Let me ask you this in relation to our passage this morning. Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever felt wronged or so hurt by someone that you felt like your world had been turned upside down? Maybe you can't relate to a specific story of that magnitude, but consider for a second If tomorrow morning you woke up and everyone close to you in your life had left you and had abandoned you, how would you walk forward? Well, this morning, Jesus finds himself in a similar situation. Today's passage marks a sharp turning point in Mark's narrative. You see, up until this point, Jesus has been the one who has been obviously absolutely in control of everything. He taught his disciples and he directed their steps. He slipped away from threats against him when need be. He healed people and cast out demons at will, amazing the crowds. His opponents had tried to confuse him several times by baiting him with questions. And yet Jesus always prevailed. But that's going to end here in this passage, seemingly. In the last passage in Mark, in verse 41, we read this from the mouth of Jesus. He said, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, these are incredible words from our Savior. 
As he's alluded to many times before, Jesus already knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly where he was going. And here we are in chapter 14 at the beginning of the end. Judas has got to be one of the saddest figures in all of human history. He spent years following Jesus, learning from him, being shepherded by him. He enjoyed intimate friendship with Jesus and the 11 other disciples. And yet somehow it wasn't enough. Our passage this morning is the most significant betrayal in all of human history. And my hope this morning is twofold for us. Number one, that we would see the beauty of Jesus, who is sovereignly in control. And two, that as we see our weaknesses more clearly, that it would cause us to depend more deeply on Jesus. Let me read for us the first four verses of our text again this morning. It said, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and said at once, Rabbi, and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. I mean, this is a plan. Judas had informed the mob where Jesus would be. And unlike any other time where he could have been seized, this time it was a relatively small crowd. The seizure was going to take place in some sort of secrecy, away from the masses who had been flocking to Jesus. In verse 2 of this chapter, we read this. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. See, they had to avoid crowds because the crowds loved him. They flocked to him. And when he entered the city just a short while before, they were declaring him to be the saving one, the Messiah. And so the religious and the political elite feared Jesus because he was way too popular. There was no way for them to just take him in broad daylight without causing a riot. Well, Judas was coming to their rescue. Chapter 14, verse 10 and 11 says this. says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I don't know that there's necessarily any more rhyme or reason for Judas's choice to betray Jesus other than money. He was a thief. The scriptures tell us so. He was selfish to the core and he wanted what every one of those coming to grab Jesus wanted. Power, money, control, fame, but he was a masterful deceiver. See, the other disciples had absolutely no clue of the schemes of this man, their brother. They had no idea what his true heart was and what he had been planning. If you remember back in the upper room where Jesus told them that one person in that room would betray him, they were all dumbfounded. They couldn't believe it possible. And if you notice, Mark makes mention that it is Judas. When he makes mention that it's Judas, he says that it's one of the 12. Well, why would he say that? I mean, obviously they knew that he was one of the 12. I can't know for certain, but I imagine Mark's writing that in there, still in utter disbelief, still amazed that one of them, among them, could be the one who would betray him. 
Then with Judas, at this point, comes the mob. And who exactly is this mob of people? Well, it's chief priests, it's the scribes, it's the elders. In other words, this is an officially commissioned police detail sent and authorized by the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish court. And given the fact that they were carrying weapons, they were not exactly, or they were expecting Jesus to be taken not quite as easily as he could have been at the temple. And if we were there that night, we would have witnessed a very bleak scene. Out of the corner of our eyes, we would see from the clearing a group of armed men. Every one of them, like you or I, would have been tempted to flee. Just a pause. I promised my children they spent all day yesterday uh, watching YouTube videos on how to make uh, origami weapons. Uh, so these are my props. This is a, uh, we'll pretend like this is what they were using at the time. This is a, a double-edged spear of sorts, very dangerous. The nunchucks didn't make it, I'm kind of sad about that. And this one is uh, masterfully woven with a hand grip and uh, there's a sheath, I believe, that Cody made. So I promised them that I would show these to you all in their artistic work from yesterday. So you have unarmed disciples and you have an armed mob armed with metal ones like that and they're coming toward them and what does Jesus do? Well we assume that Jesus saw them coming or at least heard them because back in verse 42 he says rise let us be going see my betrayers at hand so in essence Jesus does nothing. He didn't tell his disciples to get up so that they could leave. Instead, he walks right toward Judas and the mob. And Judas, in the most indicting act of his life, makes an absolute mockery of Jesus. See, in the dark of the night, those with Judas needed a sign so that they would know who they were to seize. It could have been anything. It could have been a pat on the shoulder. It could have been the pointing of a finger. It could have been anything, but the sign is not anything. The sign that he would give is the picture of an intimate betrayal. See, Judas walks right up to Jesus and most likely excitedly exclaims, Rabbi, which means in this context, it would have sounded something like my great one. And then he moves in closer and he designates Jesus with the sign that was agreed, a kiss. And this is somewhat strange because we don't really see the disciples greeting Jesus with a kiss in other parts of the scripture. Still, it was a relatively customary greeting at the time. However, it wasn't just a kiss. I don't read Greek, but nearly everyone who does who I read told me that this word here actually refers to a more passionate and lavish kiss. Now, there's no need to take that to some sort of perverse extreme. The, the point here is that this was the ultimate betrayal in human history. This was the beginning of the mocking of Jesus that would ensue over the final hours of his life. Like the sign over his head on the cross that read King of the Jews, mocking his perceived helplessness as he hung on the cross, Judas here proclaims, Rabbi, great teacher. And then he seals the fate of his teacher and friend with an impassioned kiss. And I heard one pastor describe this as the greatest illustration of wasted opportunity and squandered privilege ever. 
See, what was Jesus feeling right at this moment? Hurt? Sadness? Right in front of him stood one of his friends, a man that he had walked alongside for years. And with a dramatic greeting and the most unholy of kisses, Jesus is rejected. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus responded simply to Judas with this, friend, do what you came to do. I don't think Jesus was angry with Judas necessarily. Of course, he already knew that Judas was going to betray him. And yet I believe that Jesus loved Judas, even as he pitied him. I think he hated this outcome just as much as he hated the idea of drinking the wrath of God. I think he wished it could have been any other way than this. And so even in this moment, Mark doesn't record Jesus assailing Judas. Instead, he stands before his betrayer and he willingly submits himself to the will of his father in his capture. And after this betrayal, in verse 46, it says, and they laid hands on him and they seized him. And then there's no more Judas. The other gospel writers have more to say about Judas in their accounts, but Mark is completely done with him. He won't mention anything about him again. In fact, Mark has the simplest account of this betrayal and capture. Mark's focus in this narrative is laser focused on Jesus and getting to the cross as fast as possible. Verse 46 again, and they laid hands on him and they seized him. And just like that, everything changes. This is the very first time where Jesus chooses to give over control of his fate to the hands of sinful men, and he will no longer slip away. There is no fight for him. There is no resisting. There is no getting away because there was no need. See, Jesus was in control of his life that night, complete sovereign control, and the hour had come for him to be taken. And I love this picture of our Savior you know, oftentimes when I'm officiating a wedding, I'll talk very specifically about the idea of, of submission. See, Jesus is the perfect picture of submission. In this moment, he did not despise his adversaries. He did not show the wrath of God against their wickedness, which Judas and the mob were certainly worthy of receiving. He did not do that because he was doing exactly what God had sent him to do. He was giving his life over to be put to death. And so I thought, and I ask you, how would you have responded if you were there that night? If you had known Jesus, walked with him, and loved him in the flesh, what would you have done? See, the disciples who were with him then had been astonished that any of them could have turned their back on Jesus. How could that be possible? And now that they see it happening before their very own eyes, what would they do? Well, we know at least what one of them would do. Verse 47 says this, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, as I mentioned before, the only two names that Mark tells us in this text are Judas and Jesus. Mark doesn't seem to concern himself with anything else specifically, but we know from John's gospel account that this actually was Peter. And what does Peter do when they seize him? Well, they grab, he grabs a sword and he steps out to stop the madness. 
And this isn't shocking, really. Of any of the disciples, Peter was the one most adamant that if everyone else denied Jesus, he would never be one of them. That's recorded back in verse 29 of the same chapter. He was also known to be impulsive. See, Jesus walks up to the mob calm with purpose. Peter walks up to the crowd ready to take action. And without question, I really do believe that Peter was doing what he thought was right, what he thought that his rabbi would want him to do. And yet, he's still lost. He still doesn't see the bigger picture. One author wrote this. How easy is it to be out of step with Christ when we think we are serving him, even defending him? See, Jesus did not need defending. And if Peter could have seen the entire story, he would have known that it was the will of God that Jesus be handed over. But instead, being somewhat out of step with Christ, his actions, even if intended for good, caused hurt. In this, quite, in this case, quite literally bloodshed. In the Gospel of Luke, we're reminded that Jesus actually stopped him from going further, and he healed the wound of his enemy, and Peter put away his sword. And this resonated with me so much as I look back over the last six months, which it's hard to look at God's word and not think of the last six months. It's so easy to take matters into our own hands and just plow forward without taking into consideration what the Lord wants, especially when we're tired and the situation at hand feels so high pressure. I've spoken to Craig and the other elders about this over the last several months. We have felt so supported by this congregation in this season, and we are so grateful. And even so, there's always this nagging question of, are we doing things the right way? There's no shortage of critics inside and outside of the church that can make every decision feel so weighty. Many times it's tempting to talk it out and talk it out with people and come to the best man-contrived wisdom while ignoring the patient call to sit at the feet of Jesus and his word with humility and seek the wisdom of the Father. Think about this section in context. What was Jesus doing just prior to the mob arriving? Well, he was praying. He is the Lord of all creation, and yet he was praying to his heavenly Father moments before he would be seized. He was seeking the will of his Father. Jesus said, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He was not tempted to flee. He was not going to be rushed. He was not going to be worried. He was not going to be afraid. He knew the will of God. He knew that on that night, his life would be relinquished into the hands of his enemies. In contrast, what were the disciples doing? They were sleeping. See, Jesus warned them that temptation was coming. Here it is. And he wanted them to stay awake and to watch him. But they didn't. Instead of watching Jesus commune with his father, instead of praying in dependence on God, they let their eyes grow tired. And friends, this is exactly the same area that I am prone, prone to fall into, that I believe we are prone to fall into. Sin in our life is not merely a list of law-breaking bad things that we do. There's a more subtle form of sin that does not rest in the sovereignty of God and instead seeks to take matters into our own hands and just get things done and press forward. Or sin is a passive complacency that stands shocked at the hardships of life, causing us to move away from dependence on God 
to seek rest in other things. If we look back at our text, I ask, well, why, why does Mark put this here with no reference to Peter? He doesn't mention his name. Well, there's certainly room to analyze Peter from the other gospel accounts. But as we've heard countless times as we've studied Mark, Mark is very, very deliberate about every word that he puts in here. And so if he didn't reference Peter's name, it's because he wants your attention to be elsewhere. And that is clearly on Jesus. Look at what Jesus says next. Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching you and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had been with this mob. He taught them in the temple. He had been with them many times before in broad daylight and he never had a security detail with him. He was never concerned for his own life. And so he asked them, are you treating me now like a, a robber? Almost as if to say, have I ever given you any reason to believe that I would fight back against you? I imagine that Christ must have felt here the humiliation of now being treated like a common thief. But this is also an indictment against the mob. See, they haven't been paying attention either. They actually think that Jesus was going to lash out with them, and lash out at them to protect himself. But what they didn't know is that they could have sent one lonely temple guard and he would have willingly surrendered his life. See, Peter drawing a sword was not necessary and it was short-sighted. Luke even tells us that Jesus healed the man's ear right after the event. These men in the mob didn't need swords and clubs. There was no battle that would ensue for Jesus' life. Even when his friends tried to defend him, Jesus himself would not allow it. And so we look at Jesus. Jesus, who is once again very alone. He is the only person in that whole bunch, the mob, the disciples, who really understood what was happening. He may have been alone, but he was not confused and he was not uncertain. He stayed awake praying all night, sweating tears of blood and angst, depending on the will of his father, because he knew what was coming. Look at verse 49. Jesus declares this, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. It's uncertain, I think, exactly which scriptures are being fulfilled here. It's possibly Isaiah 53, 12, which reads, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Or in the case of verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Maybe Mark had in his mind Zechariah 13, 7, which reads this, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But in these last two sentences, verses 49 and 50, Jesus fulfills the will of God by willfully giving his life to be tortured and killed. And then everyone leaves him and he is alone and abandoned. We see the two things here that I mentioned at the very beginning. We see the sovereign son of God in complete control. And we see the weakness of all of those who said they would never leave him as they flee the scene. See, every last one of Jesus' friends drank the cup of the blood of the new covenant with Jesus just hours before. And every last one of them declared that they would never turn their backs on Jesus. And yet here we see Jesus seized and alone while they flee. 
They are now truly like never before sheep without a shepherd. And without their shepherd, without the very presence of Jesus, their fear would overtake them. And just as we will see with Peter, they would deny Christ as any of us would if we did not have Christ to cling to. But think about who was actually being seized in this text. Who was actually being led away? I contend that it was the mob. See, Jesus, with the sovereign will of God behind him, was using these men to lead him to the place where he would give his life as a ransom for many, just as scripture had said that he would. They were his tool being used for the salvation of men as he was led to the cross. So where does this leave us here today in this field or in our homes? Two things to consider as we close. First, we truly are weak and sinful. See, the life of Judas is by far one of the greatest pictures of how low the human heart can go. But even the disciples showed their weakness as they fled the scene while Jesus was being hauled away. So I ask us, consider what circumstances now in your life cause you to depart from the will of God, causing you more pain than peace. What circumstances cause you to pull out a sword and charge your way forward without even considering the bigger picture that God has for you? And when you figure it out, don't fall asleep. Stay awake and pray. Pray as if your life will be required of you tonight. And that may sound intense, but that's the picture that we see with Jesus. It was the Father that sustained him in this moment to continue to hand his life over. As such, a follower of Jesus committed to the ministry of a prayerful dependence on God can and will endure great hardship and great suffering and great uncertainty. Stay vigilant in pursuing the Lord and his word so that you will know him well. The second thing to leave with this morning is this. Though we are sinful and weak, Jesus is not weak and he is not sinful. Yet in the moment of his capture, he became weak so that he could go to the cross and die for your sin. What we learn in this passage is that when everything is pressing down around us, when we feel weak or afraid, when our sin causes us to take matters into our own hands, or when we flee in distress, Jesus is not weak. He was then, just as he is now, completely in control. This is why we can have confidence to go to him. To rest in anything else, to seek true wisdom or rest anywhere else is absolute foolishness. In the midst of great turmoil, when all his friends abandoned him, Jesus walked forward to the cross for their sake. And we can trust him. See, the disciples didn't exactly know what the future held. And we certainly don't know exactly what the future holds for us in the coming months and years. And it caused them to fear. The good news for us, especially in this season, is that we don't have to know the future. But we can trust the one who does and causes all things to come to pass. Because whatever might happen in the hardships and turmoils of the coming years of our lives, we know that Jesus completed his rescue mission, the one that started 
that day when he gave his life over to be crucified. Let's look to Christ. Let's trust him together. They pray for us. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you that you did not turn away. Thank you that depending on your father that night gave you the necessary courage and faith to continue to let your guard down to allow yourself to be handed over. God, we thank you that you do not despise us in our shame. You do not despise us in our weaknesses, God, but in your mercy for us by giving your life that you make a way for us to be reconciled to you. Be with us, we ask the rest of this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.